Good morning. Make a difference? There we go. My bad, not the guys in the back. Sorry about that, Ricky and Mike, I think it is. A warm welcome to you if you are visiting with us. Um, let me just mention, if, if you are here visiting and you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles scattered throughout the room under the chairs. You take a look around, you'll find one eventually. If you're a regular here and you see someone sitting nearby who doesn't have a Bible in their hands, try to dig one out for them and make sure they get it. Uh, you're going to need it. Now, you can turn with me in your Bible, God's Word, to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. If you aren't too familiar with the Bible, uh, flip through the first few pages. You'll find a table of contents listing all of the books. Find Mark. It will give you a page number, and you can wind and weave your way there. We're all familiar with the term superficiality. I won't ask you to spell it, but I'm sure we've all heard it, superficiality. Uh, We use the term to describe something which is on the surface, right? Something which is shallow. And so we speak of a superficial wound or a superficial bruise. It's only skin deep. It's shallow. It's on the surface. At times, unfortunately, at times we use the word to describe people, that individual superficial. We mean the person is kind of, kind of shallow, and it's a, a term we use, and I think we have a pretty good grasp of what it means, uh, something that's really void of substance, uh, something that is lacking depth. At times, I'm not going to belabor this, but I think it's important we acknowledge it and make a couple of comments, at times our society, our culture can be uh, shallow, can't it? It can be very superficial. There are a number of factors uh, contributing to this. I'm just going to mention four. I could list a hundred, but I don't want to belabor this too much today. But uh, let me give you four factors that at times, oftentimes, make our culture, the society in which we live, kind of superficial. The first is this, an increasing love for technology. The love of technology. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, Mark my words. Technology is morally neutral. Technology can be a good thing. Technology can be a bad thing. It depends, on, of course, on how we, how we use it. Technology becomes superficial when we use it to disengage from the real world. We use it to disengage from the real world. Technology makes it possible for us to be physically present while mentally absent. It began with the television. It blossomed with the personal computer. It mushroomed with the Internet. And it has exploded with wireless. We are connected. We are hooked up 24-7. One author has penned the following. Technology enables absent presence. That's good. Technology enables absent presence. And when that occurs, it leads inevitably to superficiality. Second factor, the love of novelty. Most people accept unquestioningly the notion that we are progressing as a people. In the past, we were bound to superstition and tradition, the dark ages. But now we have seen the light. 
And so most people don't view themselves as stewards of the past. They think the future is all that matters. Now, those of you familiar with that series, The Lord of the Rings, we recently saw The Hobbit come out, but uh, if you're familiar with those movies, you're familiar with those books, The Lord of the Rings, you'll remember the central figure, Frodo. And Frodo is on a mission to do what? Not primarily to destroy the ring. Frodo is on a mission to preserve a way of life as represented by the Shire. You see, the Shire represents all that is good, all that is honorable, all that is worth preserving. Saren, the arch enemy, is seeking to implement what? A new world order. What was J.R. Tolkien in his Christian worldview, what was he seeking to convey? His point was simply this. We must guard the permanent things. There are things worth protecting and preserving. But when we fall into the love of novelty, we become inevitably, sooner or later, rather superficial. Third factor is this, the love of equality. We're all equal. I'll repeat that one. We're all equal. That statement might be true, it might be false. It depends on what we mean by it. If we mean we are all equal in value in God's sight, amen, it is true. If, however, we mean we are all equal in skill and ability, it is wrong. And yet that is the prevailing mindset. It has given rise to a culture of entitlement. People think they are entitled to what other people have. People think their opinion is valid and valuable regardless of their qualifications. As one author has penned, we are raising a generation of children who have been deceived by the lie that we all deserve a trophy. That is a generation in which we live. It is a superficial generation because of love of equality. Fourth factor, the love of prosperity. Our society thinks spending is morally virtuous. Did you know that spending makes up 70% of our economy? 70%. And so we talk about the consumer index, which measures consumer confidence. Problem is this, consumerism is predicated on the unspoken assumption that we attain happiness by acquiring stuff. That's consumerism. And advertising is designed to convince us of this. And it leads to superficiality. Those are four factors. I'm not joking. I give you a hundred. But our culture, our society, it, it is prone to superficiality when our love is, is misplaced. I'm going to leave it at that. That's all I'm going to say about our society and the superficiality, which at times is rampant. But I leave it with you, but encourage you to think it through. There are some nuggets in there worthy of our consideration and contemplation, even as Christians. The second truth I want to state when it comes to superficiality is this, and this is the one we're going to develop this morning. At times, our religion can be superficial. Just as our culture can be superficial, and there are factors contributing to it, uh, equally true, and perhaps more important, at times, dare I say, oftentimes, our religion can be superficial. That's what we're going to develop today in this hour. That's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to try to get our minds around. We're going to try to diagnose superficial religion and then consider a very potent remedy 
for superficial religion. We're going to do so in the context of where we're at in our study of the book of Mark, chapter 12, but that's not where we're going to begin. If you found the book of Mark, turn to chapter 1 and the very first verse and listen to what Mark says at the outset of his gospel account. He introduces the entire content of what he writes, 16 chapters constituting this book, And in the very first chapter, very first verse, his introduction, he sets the ball rolling. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is Jesus Christ? Mark makes it clear. He leaves us without any doubt or any uncertainty. He states it right at the outset. First truth he wants to convey, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. From verse 2 all the way through to chapter 9, verse 13, 14, Mark proves it. He demonstrates it. He has stated Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in his first nine and a half chapters, more or less, less, give give or take a few verses, he proves that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How? By emphasizing his authority, the authority of Jesus. These verses, as you read them at your leisure sometimes on a Sunday afternoon, you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way through to chapter 9, verse 13. They're like a crescendo. I think I said that right. I'm not very musical, but I think I know what a crescendo. Thank you, April. A crescendo. And a crescendo is a gradual increase in volume or in intensity. That's what these verses are, a crescendo. A gradual increase in intensity, and it peaks in the first half of chapter 9 with what? The transfiguration. That there's the Lord Jesus on the mountaintop, the cloud descends, His glory shines through, and we hear the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son. Who is Jesus Christ? He is, this is the starting point, this is the beginning of all knowledge. He is the Son of God. Why has he come? Look at what Mark says again in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has come to preach the gospel. He has come to set the foundation of the gospel. How? Look briefly with me at three verses, beginning in Mark chapter 8. He states it so clearly. Jesus himself, as recorded by Mark, chapter 8, firstly, verse 31. And he began to teach them. That is, Jesus teaches his disciples that the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, must. In other words, it's absolutely necessary. There's no way around it. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. If you need repetition for things to really take root there in your minds, then you're just like me and Jesus gives it to us. Look at chapter 9 now, verse 31. For he was teaching, again, that's Jesus, was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. In case we missed it the first two times, he repeats it once more into the 10th chapter. Verse 33, again, the words of the Lord Jesus, speaking to his disciples, see We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, 
will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Three explicit, I mean, it's clear, isn't it? Declarations from the lips of the Lord Jesus as to why he has come. The Son of God has become a man in order to die. Why? He tells us in verse 45 of chapter 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he has come. That's why he dies willingly, freely, consciously, purposefully at Calvary's cross. He gives his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean, a ransom? To purchase those who are in debt. In debt to what? Their own sin. And in debt to the consequences of their sin, the penalty of their sin. When it comes, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, but just hone in. This is extremely important. When it comes to understanding our predicament before God, just, just move over here with me to my left, to your right, and, and, think, and think of our predicament in God's sight. The, the starting point is this, is understanding that we are created in the image of God. That, that, that gives us great dignity. It gives us great value. Created in the image of God. We move down from that. The second thing we need to understand about ourselves is this, that we are humans. And as humans, we consist, it's a duality of bodies, our body, our physical body, and a spiritual soul. So you've got that. Number one, we're made in God's image. There's our dignity. Number two, we possess a body and a soul. Number three, though, we are sinners. That our souls are not inclined toward God. Our souls are inclined inward toward ourselves. We love ourselves. We epitomize selfishness. And here's the thing, we can't fix ourselves. We can't do anything to save ourselves. We are completely dependent on a salvation that comes from outside of us. Have you got those three? Here's the problem, and friend, if you, if you aren't too familiar with the church and aren't too familiar with the Bible and aren't too familiar with the gospel, then you really need to lean in and listen to this because what I just said, you will not hear in, anywhere in our society or culture today. As a matter of fact, our society teaches the exact opposite. The starting point of a true knowledge of self is understanding that we are created in the image of God. Our society tells us we're accidents. We're just freaks of nature, right? Just grown-up germs. The second truth is what? That we are a duality. We possess bodies, but we also possess souls. Our society tells us what? We're actually machines. And then third truth is what? We are sinners, and we're in need of salvation. We cannot help ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. And yet here's the irony. Our culture, our society tells us what? Or teaches what? The perfectibility of human nature. Here's the irony. We're accidents to begin with. We're simply machines, physical, material, secondly. And yet we can perfect human nature. You see, our society and what is espoused and what is preached is completely antithetical to what the Bible teaches concerning our predicament. It's the starting point. We need to understand who we are, what we are, and precisely what our problem is. Yes, great supreme dignity 
great value in God's sight because we're created in His image. Yes, a physical body and a spiritual soul capable of communion with the divine God Himself. And yet we are crippled, overrun by our sin. And therefore we need a Savior. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is who He is. The Son of God has become a man. That man has lived a perfect life. And he went intentionally to Calvary's cross, not, as an, not, not by way of accident, not because he was taken by surprise, but by his own eternal design to lay down his life as a ransom for us. Friend, repent and believe. If that, if, if, if this, is, this, is, this is new, somewhat confusing, fine, think it through. But get into the Scripture, understand who and what you are, understand who the Lord Jesus is and precisely why He came. He did not come in the first instance to make your life better. He did not come to solve your problems. He did not come to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He came to save you. You need a Savior. Because your sin brings you under the sentence and condemnation of God. You must be redeemed. And there is only one way to be redeemed. is by putting our faith, resting as we sung those beautiful songs and hymns. Wasn't that wonderful what we were singing this morning? Were you listening to the words of what we were saying and expressing? What it means to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the intent of Mark's book. It is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And Jesus himself makes it clear why he is here. He is not a spiritual guru. He is not here to be your counselor or trainer or your best friend. He is here to save you. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this is fascinating. This is extremely interesting when we get into the book of Mark. The first 10 chapters, in those 10 chapters, Mark covers three years. We lose, our, we lose our breath. We're breathless when we come to the end of the 10th chapter because he's just always talking immediately, next, after, immediately, immediately, immediately. Jesus did this. He went there. He said this. He did this. He went there. Immediately after this. Immediately after this. Immediately after this. He just covers. He's in, he's in such a hurry. He's like, slow down, Mark. No, I don't want to slow down. Why? He wants to get to the cross. And so in the first 10 chapters, he covers three years. In the last six chapters, he covers a week. Talk about emphasis. That should you know, send off alarm bells or something in our minds. Hey, the last chapters are pretty important. This is what Mark is really stressing and emphasizing is that last week. And this is where we have arrived in our study. We are in the last week. It begins in chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's actually spending his nights in a little town, a little city called Bethany, within walking distance of Jerusalem. On the Sunday, he visits the temple in Jerusalem. We read all of that about that. In chapter 11, the first 11 verses, he visits the temple, he inspects it. And then we have Monday, verse 12 of chapter 11, and it goes all the way through to verse 19. He returns to the temple, this time not to inspect it, but to cleanse it, right? To get all that rabble out of the temple, or mocking, making a mockery of the temple and the worship of God. And then we have Tuesday, Still in chapter 11, beginning in verse 20, it goes all the way to the end of chapter 13. It's big, big, busy, busy, busy day. And here, his primary purpose is to curse the temple. 
Right? He's inspected it on Sunday. He has cleansed it on Monday. He's about to curse it on Tuesday. But he doesn't actually get to it to chapter 13. We're going to see that, Lord willing, next Sunday. Before he can curse it, he engages, and this is, the, this is the, the main content of chapter 12, he engages in these running battles with the Jewish religious leaders. And these Jewish religi- religious leaders, they come at him from four different angles. The first angle, the first argument begins in chapter 11, verse 27. It goes all the way through to chapter 12, verse 12, and they attack him personally. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority to do these things? And then in verse 13 of chapter 12 to verse 17, they attack him politically. Is it lawful to pay taxes unto Caesar? And then in verse 18, still in chapter 12, we've covered all this, all the way through to verse 27, they come at him theologically. And the Sadducees want to enter into a debate concerning the resurrection and the validity of the resurrection. And then the fourth angle, the fourth attack, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 12, it goes through to verse 34, they come at him morally, which is the most important commandment of all. Do you get that? It's Tuesday, he's in the temple, he's there to curse it, he's going to do that in chapter 13. But first he engages in these four, one, two, three, four debates as his enemies really the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they come at him every which way, personally, politically, theologically, and morally. And then in verse 35 of chapter 12, the Lord Jesus, in just a couple of simple statements, turns the tables. And what he does, beginning in verse 35, through to the end of the chapter, verse 44, is he diagnoses What is the real problem here? All these people, these leaders have come at him and they want to debate this. They want to argue about that. They're trying to entrap him in his words concerning this. And there are all of these questions and all of these arguments. And then in a couple of simple statements, Jesus, he simply, with a swipe of his arm, he just wipes it all away. And he says, let's cut to the quick. What is the real issue here? And what he does is he unmasks their superficiality. Look at what we read in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So again, what is the context? 
It is that fourfold argument he has had with the Jewish religious leaders. And he is now stating emphatically, look, this is, this, this is all a distraction. You, 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 you are dealing with peripheral issues. Let, let me, let me just, just wipe away everything and dig down deep to the very heart, the very essence of the matter. You are superficial. And he proves it in verses 35 through 37, demonstrating that they are superficial in their theology. And then in verses 38 through 40, demonstrating that they are superficial in terms of their spirituality, their piety. And then for contrast's sake, in verse 41 through verse 44, he shows what true piety is like, extravagant or unfathomable generosity. So let's work through these three together, beginning with the first one. We're in verses 35 through 37, and Jesus is condemning them why their theology is superficial. How does he go about doing this? Look at what we read in 35th verse. He's, he's teaching in the temple, and he says, he just kind of throws out this question for anyone who dare answer, how can the scribes, right, the Jewish religious leaders, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? That might seem odd at first. Of course they say Christ is the Son of God. Christ, Messiah, it's the same individual. Messiah is the English transliteration of the Hebrew. Christ is the English transliteration of the Greek. It's the same individual, that person who is promised all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, all the way through the Old Testament, God has promised to send someone. He has promised to send an individual. He has promised to send a redeemer. We identify this redeemer as the Messiah coming from the Hebrew or as the Christ coming from the Greek. It simply means the anointed one, the appointed one, the one whom God has sent. And so how can the scribes say that this Christ, this Savior who is coming, is the son of David? Not a problem. Everybody knows the Christ is the son of David. Everybody knows the Old Testament. Everybody knows the promises. Everybody knows 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So why is Jesus asking how the scribes can say that the Christ is the son of David? Everybody knows it. He's not challenging their knowledge of the scriptures. He is not challenging this notion that the Christ is the son of David. What he is challenging is made clear in the very next verse, verse 36. So how can the scribes say that? How can they say that the Christ is the son of David when David himself, and now here he quotes from Psalm 110, when David himself in the Holy Spirit, so inspired by the Spirit of God, here's a clear affirmation of the authority, sufficiency, infallibility of Scripture, folks. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now look at the comment in verse 37, Christ's own remarks, commentary on that verse. David himself calls him, that is, calls the Christ, Lord. So how is he his son? There's the challenge. The scribes affirm, as everyone affirms, this is simple Simon, ABCs, everyone knows this. That the promised Christ, the promised Messiah, he will be the son of David. But how can they say that? How can the scribes say that when David himself clearly refers to the Messiah, the Christ, as his Lord? How can they affirm the humanity of the Christ? He will be 
descendant, the son of David, the offspring of David. How can they affirm that, his humanity, when David himself describes the same individual as his Lord, that is, as his God? Do you get it? They can't answer that. They have no explanation for that. And in this this manner, Jesus is unmasking the superficiality of their theology. Now, having done that, he unmasks the superficiality of their piety or spirituality. This brings us into verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes. Why? Two reasons. First of all, because of what they like. Second of all, because of what they do. So the first in verse 38, who like, he uses this word a couple of times, to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. So what is it these men like? They like to be noticed. They like to be esteemed. They like to be the center of attention. Now, he condemns them for a second reason. He says, beware of them for a second reason, not only because of what they like, but because of what they do. This brings us into verse 40. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. In other words, they are greedy. They prey on the vulnerable. And they mask, or at least they try to mask, they try to hide from view their greediness. How? Through their piety, their prayers. But it is empty. It is superficial. And look at what Christ says at the end of verse 40. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, just, let's just pause there before we move into verse 41. He's unmasked them. He's now revealed the real problem. They're superficial in terms of their theology, superficial in terms of their spirituality. We can't go any further before we ask a burning question. The question is this. Are we superficial in our theology? Are we superficial in our piety? Chapter 12. How much time do I have? Yikes. Chapter 12. It is, it's, 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 a, it's a chapter rich in theology. Let, let, me just, let me just highlight a few things here that the Lord Jesus himself points out. First of all, he points to the authority of Scripture, doesn't he? The infallibility of Scripture. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. You know where he's quoting from here? Isaiah chapter 5. And then look at verse 10 in chapter 12. Have you not read this Scripture? And he quotes from Psalm 118. Look at verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? And he goes on to refer to the book of Exodus chapter 3. And then look at verse 29, verse 30, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Verse 31, he quotes from Leviticus 19. And now in our own text, verse 36, he quotes from Psalm 110. As far as Jesus is concerned, the Old Testament is what? It is Scripture. It is the Word of God. Friend, that is the starting point for all theology. Notice, secondly, his emphasis upon the authority or the power of God. It begins in verse 11. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's referring to the cross and the Jews' rejection of the Lord Jesus, and yet how God in his sovereignty and by his authority made that the means, the very avenue by which he saves his people. Look, secondly, at verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Again, the 
authority of God. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Verse 27, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. There is this repeated emphasis on the sovereignty, the authority, the power of God. Look thirdly at man's depravity. That's emphasized in the parable he tells at the beginning of the chapter when it refers to how people have actually responded to Jesus and actually orchestrate his death. He goes down this road of human depravity again when he speaks of the greatest commandment and the second commandment. You're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There he shows us our sin and the depravity of our very nature. He speaks of coming judgment. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. There he is foretelling, prophesying that coming day of judgment. He speaks of the coming resurrection. Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The resurrection is a certainty as far as Jesus is concerned. Let me give you one more. He emphasizes the incarnation, does he not? That's precisely his point in verse 36. David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is a theologian. Jesus teaches doctrine. It begs this very simple question. Is our theology superficial? I remember hearing it a lot back in college, my university days, interacting with different kids on the campus. And a statement I heard probably more times than I could count is, give me Jesus, but don't give me doctrine. You ever heard anybody say that? Absolutely impossible. Jesus is a theologian. What Jesus are you talking about? Jesus is a theologian. Jesus expounds doctrine. I get a little nervous in our day. My fear is that many people pay lip service to doctrine. They're interested in doctrine only insofar as they deem it useful. Does this help me? If it helps me, it's important. If it doesn't help me, it's unimportant. Friend, that just makes you a consumer and reveals your superficiality. Uh, Does our theology run deep? Are we indoctrinated? That's not a bad thing. That's a fantastic thing to be indoctrinated, to have our feet firmly planted and rooted on the Word of God and what the Word of God teaches and affirms to be built up in sound teaching and doctrine. The second question we must ask is this. Is our piety, is our spirituality superficial? What made their spirituality, their their, their piety superficial? Was their hypocrisy? The word hypocrite in the Greek comes from the word mask. To wear a mask, what it literally means. The, the, The word comes from the Greek drama plays, Roman drama plays, when actors, rather than depicting uh, the emotions of the characters they were representing, they actually wore masks. And so if in this scene uh, they were to be happy, they would grab the happy mask. If they were to be angry, they would grab the angry mask. Sad, the sad mask. They had a mask for every emotion. A hypocrite is someone who wears masks. A hypocrite is someone who masks what they really are. And that leads to a superficial piety, a superficial spirituality. Here we go. Do I want people to think better of me than I really am? We all know the answer to that one. Does it bother me when people don't notice what I do? Drives me crazy. Do I plan my actions to make sure people notice what I'm doing? Am I calculating? Am I driven by what people think of me? Am I quick to condemn others, yet overly sensitive when others point out my faults? Is my spirituality primarily external or 
internal? Is it shallow or does it run deep? The great problem with hypocrisy is that it is the number one impediment to the gospel. You see, if we insist on wearing masks, if we insist on pretending we are something that in reality we are not, that will keep us from saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the number one impediment to the gospel. And that is why these priests and elders and scribes and Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees come at him and come at him and come at him and come at him. Why? Because he rips off their mask. He sees right through it to the very fiber of their being, their hearts. He knows what they are. Friend, he knows what we are in the heart of our heart. He knows exactly what we are. What we are in God's sight is what we truly are indeed. What we are in the privacy of our own homes is what we really are indeed. What we are when no one else is looking or watching is what we really are indeed. What we are in the secret places of our minds, that is who we really are indeed. When we notice that, oh friend, we go looking for a Savior, don't we? We realize we're in big trouble and we need help. We need a ransom. We need a redeemer. We need a savior. But you see, hypocrisy will keep us from Christ. Two extremely important questions. Is my theology superficial or does it go down deep? Is my spirituality superficial or is it deep, firmly planted and rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now we come to verse 41. And this too, this is is most interesting because... If, you, if you're just kind of giving it a casual reading, you might think, okay, Jesus, he, Mark, in, his, in, his, in recording this narrative, he's kind of shifting gears and he's going off, he's going to deal with something else here. No, 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 no. The, the context continues. We need to take, it, it, the big, uh, take a big bite here and understand that what Mark now records in verse 41 through 44, it's there intentionally and is linked, connected to what immediately precedes it. Because in the verses that immediately precede this text, he has, he has painted this dark portrait of, of, of superficiality. And now, against the backdrop of that fake superficiality, he, it now serves to accentuate this extravagant generosity. Do you get it? Oh, years ago, many, many, many years ago, it was time for me to buy a ring for, for Allison and get down on one knee. Actually, I didn't get down on one knee. It was raining. It was wet outside, so I didn't get down on one knee. But it was time for me to buy a ring. And uh, she's out in childcare, so she can't hear this. And, uh, and so there I am in the shopping mall and the store where they sell jewelry. And uh, they've always got the big rocks on the outside to kind of draw you in. And then the l- smaller rocks, the deeper you get. And so I'm somewhere in the back. Actually, maybe about two-thirds of the way back. I wasn't that bad. But the thing you'll notice in a jewelry store when it comes to diamonds, they're always set on what? A black surface. Why? To accentuate their brilliance. That's what we have in this text. That's the relation. You see the relationship here. What he has done in verse 35 through 40, 40 is he has painted the black backdrop so that the contrast will stand out. It will be brilliant. And now he just sort of lobs the diamond against that black backdrop, this extravagant, unfathomable generosity. And he, verse 41, that's Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury. This this is comical, really. And watched the people putting money into the offering box. So next Sunday when you come, Ike Thomas is going to be standing beside the offering box in the wall out there. And he's going to take a look at what you're giving when you put it in. What's written on that check? 
How thick is that little envelope? How many coins clattering in the box? This is what Jesus is doing, folks. He has drawn near. He has sat himself down opposite the treasury. And he is watching. He's observing. Look at that one. Look at that one. Look at that one. He is taking note of what the people put in the offering box. What's the next thing we read in verse 41? Fantastic. Many rich people put in large sums. Nothing wrong with that. He doesn't condemn that. That's fine. But now this is what grabs his attention. A poor widow, nameless. We know nothing of her. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. We can only, only, I'm going to say this and run, we can only interpret this to mean one thing. It's not about how much we give. It's about how much we keep. Isn't that what he's saying? It's not about how much we give, friend. It's about how much we we keep. Jesus doesn't condemn he doesn't condemn the wealthy for what they're giving. But this is, I mean, I wish, you know, in this narrative, you know, we just sort of freeze time for a moment and use your sanctified imagination. Just, just this freeze frame of this incident. There you have the temple and Jesus sitting there. Did you see that one? Did you see that one? To his disciples, did you notice that one? And you have these wealthy people coming, uh, maybe trumpets sounding, and uh, 13 offering boxes apparently in the temple with these copper funnels. And so as you put in the money, everybody knew how much you were giving on the basis of the noise, right? And so there they are with their bags of money. And you can picture the scribes and the Pharisees and uh, the rulers of the temple just welcoming the wealthy. Here, help, let me help you with that. And, uh, and showing them where to put their money. And then this poor widow comes with her, what is it? Two small copper coins which make a penny. Maybe she approaches one of the temple officials. Where where do I put these? Woman, who cares where you put those? I'm busy with him. I'm busy with her. But there she goes sheepishly about her business, and she gives all that she has. Friend, just to freeze frame. Freeze the moment in your mind, can you please? Where are they? They are in the temple. The temple in all its splendor. The temple in all its glory. Gold and silver and, and all, of it, all of its history and all of its splendor. Look at this marvelous building. They're about to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And so there are animals bleating everywhere, running everywhere. And, and there's this frenzy of activity as they ready themselves for this great annual feast. All this activity. And there are all the Jewish religious leaders in their, in their nice garments, pontificating over here and pontificating over there. And, and the multitude just emulating them and highly esteeming them. And then, and then the wealthy sort of come in with a little entourage and their parade, and, and they begin to give their offering, and everybody pats them on the back, and they say, look, over here we're going to build a wall, and if you give a certain amount, on a, well, what we're going to do is write your name on a brick, because you gave a certain amount, and isn't that wonderful? Friend, Freeze frame it. In the midst of it all, in what is God glorified? Here's the question. In the midst of it all, what is God glorified? Some poor, hunched over, crooked-fingered, nameless widow who gives all that she 
has. Do you see the contrast now? The superficiality of the scribes in their theology, in their spirituality, and now the extravagant generosity of this poor widow. In whom, in what is God glorified? Not the temple. He's going to destroy it in AD 70 through the Romans anyway. It's all going to burn. Not these scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. They're going to disappear from the pages of history. But here we are 2,000 years later speaking of this nameless poor widows written in the eternal book of life who because of her extravagant love for God gave and gave all that she had. Two things which make it extravagant. The first is this. The widow's giving reveals who she loves. She loves God. Second is this. The widow's giving reveals who she trusts. Where's her next meal coming from? We don't know. We don't know all the circumstances. She might have had a son right behind her who was going to take care of her. Uh, She might have had other connections. I doubt very much this was it. She was going to live a destitute life. But the point was this. She trusted God in the present, and she trusted God in the future. It begs the question, is our generosity extravagant? Is our generosity unfathomable? I'm running out of time, and maybe it's just as well. Here's a statistic for you. 1933, the height of the Depression. Do you know what the average Christian gave to the church? Uh, 3.3% of his annual income. 1933, the height of the Depression. 2004, do you know what the average Christian gave annually based on his annual income to the church? 2.5%. That's odd. From the Great Depression, from the, from the, from the pit of the Great Depression, to the height of prosperity, the average Christian's giving has actually gone down. One of the surest indicators of the condition of our hearts is how we handle money. I think that's what the text implies, isn't it? One of the surest indicators of my heart is how I handle money. Don't confuse what I'm saying. The issue isn't how much. The issue isn't primarily what we give. The issue in the case of this widow is what her giving, it could have been something else, but what her giving revealed concerning the condition of her heart. That's the issue. You get that? Because I could say right now, give a certain percentage, give a certain amount, and we'll all say, okay, that's what I need to give. As long as I do that, I'm okay. You've missed the point entirely. That's not the issue. The issue is the heart. What is at the root of our giving? What is at the root of our praying? What is at the root of our serving, of our obeying, of our worshiping? This woman is in love with God. This woman trusts God. In this woman, we have a vivid, living example. Go back in the chapter with me to verse 29 of what it means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your Strength. It is to love him exclusively. Verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is to love him supremely, and you shall love the Lord your God. It is to love him totally, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It is to love him actively. Verse 31. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. She's like a diamond, isn't she? Just 
beautiful. Who is this woman? I'm looking forward to meeting her someday. Who was she? What, What was her story? Nameless. And yet here she is, the Lord Jesus, as he sits in the grandeur of the temple, as he faces the religious elite, and as he is surrounded by the wealthy, it is this woman, this woman alone, who grabs his attention. Oh, the superficiality of the scribes. Superficial in their theology and superficial in their spirituality. In marked contrast, the extravagant generosity of this woman, a woman who loved God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't leave it there, friend. I've got to bring us back to the cross because, see, that leaves me feeling a little barren. It leaves me feeling a little empty, and so it should. It leaves me feeling greatly inadequate, and it drives me back to the cross. And there at the cross, I'm reminded of what? I'm reminded that God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And although feeble, and I dare say, although at times rather pathetic, I seek and I strive by his grace and by the spirit of God to love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. Our Father, You are indeed a great God. In your hand are the depths of the oceans and the heights of the mountains. Splendor and majesty are before you. Strength and beauty surround you. Incline our hearts, we pray to your word. Give us understanding that we might live. And we seek this from you in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.